Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 27th of August 2023, 11 o'clock service. Ros Moody speaking on Why I Am a Christian. Good morning. Christian faith has always been part of my life, which could make this a very long talk. But to answer the question, why am I a Christian? I need to tell you about some of my more difficult life experiences. I don't want to preempt the story, but I also don't want to blindside anyone who has struggled with similar issues. So I'm going to warn you now that I will be talking about miscarriage. First though, I need to pay my dues with some of my childhood photos and a bit of background detail. I was born Rosalind Elizabeth Choate on the 21st of November, 1973. Yes, I'm nearly 50. I told you it could be a long talk. I was the second of four children, two girls and two boys, born to my parents, David and Susan Choate. Dad was a GP in Shepparton, where I lived my entire childhood, and my mum taught law in FE colleges. My parents are Christians, and as a family, we attended St Nicholas Church in Shepparton, a high Anglican church, where I was baptised aged four months and later confirmed at 12 years old. Yeah, here's, this is uh, St Nicholas Church. Uh, that's a photo in the middle of me on my christening day with my godmother Penny, <laughs> looking very stern. And uh, that's me slightly older, around the age of two, I think. And then I think we have some family photos. This is taken on a family, both were taken on a family holiday to Canada to visit our cousins. There's me uh, in my lovely red tracksuit. <laughs> and in the middle, uh, next to my mum in the middle on the other photo. I attended St Nicholas School until I was 12 years old. And that's where I first discovered a love of drama, thanks to an inspiring teacher called Mr. Wilson. Aged 12, I started at Bishop One Church of England's secondary school in Sunbury. I enjoyed school. I'm a bit of a swat and I like learning. And I had some great friends, many of whom I'm still close with. The school had a strong Christian ethos. And as a teenager, I stopped going to church and mainly relied on my school for my spiritual nourishment. Aged 14, I went on a residential trip with friends to the Christian Mountain Centre in Wales. And whilst there, encouraged by one of the leaders, I prayed a prayer of commitment to Jesus. I think there's a photo as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's us at the Christian Mountain Centre celebrating having scaled Snowdon, me in the red jumper in the middle. And then that's the photo of me with some of my friends at our sixth form dinner dance. Uh, those, I'm still in touch with all of those girls. I went home after making my prayer of commitment and proudly announced to my confused parents that I had become a Christian. My mum's response was, oh, I thought you already were. Either way, from that point on, my faith became more significant to me. I feel fortunate to have attended a church school as it was an environment where being a Christian was acceptable and I never felt a need to hide my faith. That's something I've carried with me ever since. I don't always talk a lot about my Christianity, but equally I never feel the need to hide it from friends or colleagues. Religious studies were, a compulsory, were compulsory at school, and it was while studying for my GCSE that I first became familiar with Psalm 139, which was read to us earlier. It was used to teach us about the sanctity of life, that God creates us, and human life starts from the moment of conception. I stayed on at the sixth form to study my A-levels, English, History and Drama, and after a gap year teaching English in a rural school in Zimbabwe, I went to the University of Wales, Aberystwyth, to study drama. At uni, I continued to pursue my faith, forming a prayer group with three Christian girls living in my halls of residence and attending St Michael and All Angels Church, or St Mike's as the students called it. 
I also pursued a more secular life. I had lots of non-Christian friends with whom I went out drinking and partying regularly. And in my second and third years, I lived in a house of seven and I was the only Christian in the household. I was open about my faith and sometimes had conversations with my housemates about my beliefs. I also prayed for them all with my prayer group. Here's a picture of me with two of the girls from our prayer group demonstrating how fervently we prayed. <laughs> Wonderfully, God answered one of the, some of these prayers. One of my friends, Ali, on the slide there, was a language student. So in our third year, she lived overseas. While she was away, Ali became a Christian. I know from speaking to her since that our conversations played a big part in that. And when I was asked to give this talk, I messaged her and I asked her what it was about my life at that time that spoke to her. She replied, God began by getting through to me thanks to your fun personality. It was a real eye-opener to discover that being a, being a Christian and being good company could go hand in hand. You were my first Christian friend. Although as a non-Christian, I couldn't fully appreciate the struggles you went through, I saw that you were open and honest about them. Seeing how you were drawn to God, how you sought him regularly by going to meetings both in and outside church, intrigued me. I sensed the depth to your life that I couldn't quite grasp, but with hindsight, I know that God was drawing me to him through you. It felt amazing to know that despite being what I felt was a pretty poor example of what a Christian should be, God still used my presence in Ali's life to draw her to himself. After uni, I did an acting course, and most of my 20s were spent either doing fringe theatre productions, running drama workshops in schools, or doing lots of boring temping jobs in between to earn some extra money. I also fit in a second gap year, this time with the Church Mission Society, teaching English in a Coptic Orthodox school in Beni Swaif in Egypt. When I was 26, my parents split up. It was a huge shock at the time, rocking the foundations of my safe, secure upbringing. I saw my mum struggling to reconcile her decision to leave with her faith. I was angry with her at first, but over time I saw that she was happy with her new partner, who's now her husband, Jeff, and I couldn't begrudge her that. After a while, my dad also remarried to Patrice. And this is my, me and all my siblings with uh, my mum and Jeff and with my dad and Patrice on their respective wedding days. Around the time my dad met Patrice, I also met someone. I was project manager of a Christian charity called Crossroads, delivering drama-based citizenship workshops to year six in the six primary schools on the New Addington estate in Croydon. Scott Moody had just arrived in the UK from Australia, having come here to be the overseas player for Wimbledon Cricket Club. He was a teacher and he had secured a job teaching year six at one of the New Addington schools. We used to see each other on our commute to and from work. And after a few months, he invited me to join him and some colleagues for end of term drinks in Wimbledon. At first, he tried to impress me with his cricketing credentials, telling me how he had attended the Australian Cricket Academy, where he was coached in leg spin alongside Shane Warne. And he had played with other big names in Aussie cricket, the likes of Greg Blewett, Justin Langer and Damian Martin. Unfortunately for him, I knew absolutely nothing about cricket, and I hadn't even heard of Shane Warne. However, he had lots of other good qualities to impress me, and despite my lack of cricket knowledge, he obviously found good qualities in me. Soon we were dating, and just over a year later he proposed, and on the 11th of June 2005, we got married at Emmanuel Church in Wimbledon. For the first three years of our marriage, we rented a flat in Wimbledon. 
and attended the evening services at Dundonald Church. Dundonald is a church in the conservative evangelical tradition, and the teaching focused strongly on the sovereignty of God, his total control over every event, and on justification by faith alone, ensuring that we and everyone else, oh sorry, ensuring we understood that we and everyone else was destined for hell because of our sin, and could be saved only by believing in Christ's death and resurrection, and in following Jesus, not by keeping any laws or rules for living. There were also lots of talks about what following Jesus meant, which ironically seemed to include a lot of rules for living. It all felt very black and white. There was no space for questions. If you asked questions, there was always an answer, which in some ways was comforting, but it also felt somehow restrictive. Surely, I would sometimes think, God is bigger and more mysterious than this clarity of thought suggests. There were many great things about the church. I had lots of good friends. I attended midweek Bible studies where I got to know the Bible much better, and I was part of a prayer triplet. Just after our third wedding anniversary, things took something of an unexpected turn. Scott was working as director of sport at Willington Prep School in Wimbledon, and I by then had moved on from acting, and I was working for Young Enterprise, the business education charity. One day, we went off to work as usual, but halfway through the morning, Scott rang me with the news that our flat was on fire. It turned out the fire was in the roof of the building rather than our flat itself, but it left the place uninhabitable, meaning within a matter of hours, we lost our home. It was a deeply shocking experience and we were left reeling. We were lucky in that my mum and Jeff let us move into their small house in Richmond. They had moved down to Devon, but wanted to keep a London base so they could come back regularly. Not long after the fire, we were dealt a second blow when burglars got into the unoccupied block of flats via the hole in the roof, smashed open the front doors of all six flats and stripped out all the copper piping, ransacking our home in the process. When we went back to survey the damage, we found all our belongings heaped into the middle of each room so they could get to the pipes. It felt deeply violating, and once again we were left in shock. Eventually, we were able to remove our belongings, but we had to put most of them into temporary storage because there was no space for everything at my mum's. The following January, I found out I was pregnant. We were delighted and started making plans for a fresh start, a new future as a family of three. But at around eight weeks pregnant, I suffered a miscarriage and we lost the baby. We were devastated. Losing a much longed for pregnancy is always difficult, but this felt especially tough. Within eight months, we had lost our home, our belongings, and this just felt like a loss too far. I became very depressed. On the surface, I was functioning. I was going to work and getting on with daily life, but I was holding everyone, Scott, my friends, and God at arm's length, shutting down anyone who tried to express condolences for our loss. I was exhausted with the effort of holding my grief in check, which is what I felt I needed to do in order to keep going. Eventually, with some time, with time and some counselling, I felt a little better. When we first moved to Richmond, we'd found a church to go to, but over time we stopped attending. I didn't want to talk to Christian friends about the miscarriage, as I couldn't bear to be told that it was all part of God's plan, which is what I assumed they would say to me. Around 14 months after the miscarriage, I got pregnant again. This time we were a lot more cautious and anxious about it, but we needn't have worried. This one progressed beautifully, and on the 4th of December 2010, our daughter Annabelle was born. 
Yeah, she's gorgeous, isn't she? Like most new parents, we were exhausted, sleep-deprived, and completely in love with our baby. One day, as I sat on the sofa with her curled up asleep on my chest, I began to think about what it means for God to love me as his child, and I found that I had a new understanding of the depths of his love for me now that I too had become a parent. Before she was born, we had moved out of the Richmond place to a temporary let in Wimbledon, but we needed somewhere more permanent, somewhere affordable and commutable. Scott had a friend at school who many of you will know, Ruth Henson. She suggested New Malden, and soon we found a flat on Coombe Road, moving there when Annabelle was around four months old. We started to look for a church to attend. We agreed to try a few places and see what felt right. We didn't want to go back to somewhere as conservative as our former Wimbledon church. The first place we tried was the one just up the road from us, Christchurch New Malden. On our first visit here, we bumped into Ruth, who introduced us to Stephen. We very quickly found out that two of Stephen's passions are cricket and drama, which seemed rather providential. We never did get round to trying any other churches. Christchurch just felt like a good fit. Annabelle was baptised here on the 4th of December 2011, her first birthday. Just after Annabelle turned two, I got pregnant again. Once again, we were delighted. Time to grow our little family. But once again, at around seven weeks, I started bleeding. This time I knew immediately what it meant. And no amount of desperately Googling stories about pregnancies that survived bleeding or returning to hospital for more scans could change the outcome. Two weeks after the bleeding started, I miscarried again. Four months later, I was pregnant again. Okay, I thought, that's my pattern, a miscarriage followed by a successful pregnancy. But no, once again, at around eight weeks, I lost the baby. We kept trying for another child for a long time, locked in an endless cycle of hope and disappointment, layering grief upon grief. I have had five miscarriages in total. I've had numerous tests and investigations, but no doctor has ever been able to definitively tell us why this has happened to us, why I am one of the one in every hundred women who has experienced recurrent miscarriage. They say every pregnancy is different. Well, that's also true of miscarriage in my experience. Each time it happens, you're at a different stage in life. But for me, it was also a cumulative experience. Each time I grieved, not only for the current loss, but for the losses that had gone before. For the losses that had gone before. And I was, sorry. And I was taken right back to that place I was in after my first miscarriage trying to keep my grief in check so I could keep functioning. About a year before my final miscarriage, I knew I needed help to process my grief. Once again, I sought out counselling, which proved very helpful. Not only did it give me a place to cry, express the sadness that I was holding on to, it also gave me opportunity to process some of my other life experiences, to understand more about why I responded to these events in the way I did. The one thing I didn't really discuss in counselling was my faith. I was grappling to understand how God had allowed this to happen. This experience is the thing that has taken me closer that to, than any other to losing my faith altogether. Every time I got pregnant, I would beg God to please let this be the time it worked out. But he only said yes to that prayer once, and I could not understand why. And I couldn't, con and I couldn't reconcile the concept of a loving creator who in the words of Psalm 139 knits us together in our mother's wombs with what was happening to me. 
If God was completely in control, then I could only conclude that he was making this happen, and that seemed deeply cruel. How could a loving God do that? Either God was real but not loving, or he didn't exist at all. I'm very aware that there will be people today who have experienced miscarriage. If you're one of them, I'm sorry that you've been through that. Maybe you responded differently to me. Or perhaps you're sitting, waiting, as I would have been, for me to get to the conclusion and answer that impossible question. How could a loving God allow this to happen? In which case, I'm sorry, because I don't have a definitive answer for you. All I can do is tell you what has helped me hold on to my faith. It's been a long journey, and it's one that I'm still travelling. With the benefit of hindsight, I can see how God has been, work, has been at work in my life, drawing me back to him. And just as he used all of my life, the holy Christian parts and the messier, more sinful parts, to draw my friend Ali to him, so he has used all of mine. I don't have time to share it all with you, but let me give you three examples. Firstly, there is our daughter, Annabelle. I've talked a lot about our sadness at not being able to have all the children we hoped for. But the other side of that story is the incredible joy that it is to be her mother. I know every parent thinks their children are remarkable, but this girl has been such a, hu such a huge blessing to my life. Of course, parenting has its challenges, and parenting an only child can be hard at times, but we know we are very lucky with Annabelle. She is bright, talented, funny, full of energy, deeply empathetic, and underpinning all of this, as she grows, she is developing a deepening faith in God. Despite my struggles with God, I wanted to give her a Christian foundation, knowing that one day she would make up her own mind. That included bringing her to church, sending her to Christchurch school, and praying with her at bedtime, before she got old enough to do that herself. I have no doubt that her faith is real. She thinks deeply about God, and she has her own ideas about what he's like. For a while, the only reason I kept coming to church was for her. She loved it so much that I didn't want to take that away from her. Over the years, as I've attended church, God has taught me more about himself through the teaching here. Attending the 9.30 service wasn't always easy, with its seemingly endless announcements of families having more babies. But that has also meant there are lots of baptisms there. Time after time, I have watched Stephen make the sign of a cross on the baby's forehead and say the words, Christ claims you for his own. One day, as I heard those words, God reminded me that they, they had also once been spoken over me, that I too have been claimed by Christ and I belong to him. And that meant I didn't have to keep hanging on to my faith because in Christ, God is holding on to me. I've also heard a different approach to the gospel here than the one I had done previously. I've gained a better understanding of the impact of sin on all of creation. I can see that my experiences are part of living in a fallen world, not punishment for my own sins, but still an example of the imperfectness of the created order. The emphasis here has been less on our individual need for salvation and more on the transforming power of God's love. Which brings me to my third thing, my work. <clears throat> For many years now, I've led or managed volunteering functions in charities. Currently, I'm the national lead for volunteering at Family Action. In my role, I've seen people give their time freely to serve and make a difference in their communities. I've heard about lives transformed by volunteers who spend time supporting them through incredibly difficult circumstances. One day, it dawned on me that the best illustration I've seen of love in action is in Friendship Works, our youth mentoring service. 
The service recruits, trains and supports adult volunteer mentors to be matched with children who've experienced childhood traumas and are facing multiple challenges. For many children, this experience is transformational and reaches into other areas of their lives. There are many things that mentors can't change about the child's circumstances, yet their presence in the child's life brings change and hope for a better future. Although the service doesn't describe it in these terms, it demonstrates how love can reach into the toughest of circumstances and make a difference. But in my struggles, this bothered me. This is not a Christian charity, and mentors come from all walks of life. Most are not people of faith. I began to wonder why we need, needed God. It seemed there were plenty of good people changing lives for the better without needing his guidance to do it. I can't pinpoint exactly when or how, but God slowly changed my perspective. Working with Friendship Works, I learned about attachment theory. Attachment theory focuses on the importance of a baby forming a secure bond with their caregiver in the early years. If that doesn't happen, it creates a higher risk of a whole range of negative life outcomes, such as addiction, forming, difficulty forming healthy relationships, and behavioural issues. But the likelihood of those things happening can be reduced by introducing a secondary attachment figure, such as a mentor. Neuroscientists have found that our attachment experiences, positive and negative, actually impact the formation of neural pathways as our brains develop. In other words, when a safe, positive adult shows love to a child who's experienced trauma, it doesn't just make the child feel better because they get some positive attention, it actually rewires their brains. I concluded that these acts of love make a difference because we have literally been created that way. We've been created to receive love, and when we do, it improves our life chances. And we've been created to give love. It's well evidenced that volunteering brings a whole range of positive out outcomes to the volunteer themselves, as well as to their communities. Through my work, God has shown me that the world works exactly as he says it will in the Bible. The world is full of people who've experienced all kinds of difficulties and traumas. Because our world is imperfect, but love overcomes. Always. Regardless of the motivations of the person giving the love, they may not know God, but when they show love to others, it's still transformational, because that is how God has created us. When I started to get my head around this, my other questions became less pressing. If God's promise of the transforming power of love is true, then that means I can rely on his other promises. I may not understand why I have suffered as I have, but I can trust that God has been with me throughout. Even when I held myself back from him, even when I went to the depths, he was there. Over time, God has restored me, not to the faith I had before. Our relationship has changed. The grief is still there, and sometimes it can be triggered unexpectedly, and I have to just allow myself to feel it until it subsides again. But I have also been healed through these experiences. I know myself better, and I know God better too. Despite everything, overall, I'm happier and I have more joy in my life now than I did when I was younger. Did God make those miscarriages happen to test me or teach me? I don't believe he did. It would be too cruel. But just as the Bible promises, he has worked through these things for my good because he loves me. Even though I sometimes find it hard to do, I can trust all God's promises, including the promise I find it hardest to believe that one day the grief I still carry will be lifted 
that God himself will wipe away my tears. The only explanation I have for what's happened to me is that the Bible tells me that creation is broken, but the promise held out to me in the Bible is that one day that will be fixed. God will make everything new, including me, and that is why I am a Christian.